Washington, how many laws would you need? I mean, how many laws do we really need? Um, you know, think about it. You've got over 8,000 people in the city limits of Ephrata, 8,000 different thoughts, 8,000 different beliefs, 8,000 different ideas. Think of just pets alone. One neighbor wants 20 cats. These are real examples, by the way. One neighbor doesn't think any animals should be in the city limits. That's for the farms. One, an one person wants to have goats in the backyard. One person wants to raise chickens. So all of a sudden, you say, well, it shouldn't be a lot of laws. I'm kind of libertarian. I kind of feel like if we pass one law, we ought to remove another one, keep everything in balance. But all of a sudden, just animals alone, it becomes pretty complex. So how do you balance all that? To live in relative harmony, but not have so many laws. So the question is, how many laws do you really need to run a small town? And there it is. That is the ordinance book for the city of Ephrata. It's about yay thick. There's a couple hundred different ordinances in there, and it covers everything from pets and what you can have and can't have and how many of this, that, and the other thing, all the way up to how you build a subdivision, things like that. Not a big fan of all that. It's kind of boring, but it's important because, for example, with pets, it can lead to a little bit of friction. So you want to have some things that, you know, kind of it, it's not personal. It's the law. That's the constitutional system in America is the law is the king. It's not one person's opinion. Now, let's say you want to build a house or anything. How many laws does it take for that? Well, this isn't even local. This is all international and national, and there it is. It takes three books that are about twice the size of Ephrata's ordinance because they write much smaller. So if you want to build something, you actually have to go three sets of laws Three books just to build something. It's International Building Code. It goes actually up to Canada and the United States together that you have to follow all those laws. What about a state? How many laws for just a state? Well, it's an encyclopedia set. That's the Revised Code of Washington. It sits up on a shelf, and it's actually much, much worse than that. But encyclopedias, for those of you that are a little bit younger than I, it was like Wikipedia printed out except it was accurate. So it's, it was, there were a big set of books that we all had growing up, and they, the World Book and the Encyclopedia. Anyways, that's a bunch of books on the shelf. What about the United States Code? Small library. That's the United States Code, and of course it's way worse than that. And why do we have all these laws? Whose fault is it? It's ours. We vote for people who promise, and I quote, do something. And what they do is they pass a law. And we vote for them over and over again, and they pass more laws. And all of a sudden you get this, you know, what started out as one, well, two big pieces of parchment is now an entire library. So laws don't, I'm not an anarchist. Laws are necessary. Laws are even important sometimes. But they can be a pain. And if you get too many of them, it can really screw things up. Too many laws can, they raise the cost of things. They make insurance too expensive. They make it difficult for to have growth because there's so many laws. Too many laws can become a curse. You can be cursed by the law. And that's our title for the, the whole sermon today is Cursed by the Law. My name's Wes and I'm an elder here at Grace Point, and I'm covering for our bionic pastor, 
who has had his foot taken apart and put back together. Um, he's doing quite well. Week three, going well. He now has a little, uh, I don't know what you call it, like a scooter. You put your knee on it and keeps your foot off the ground. He can kind of, has a little steering wheel, has a cup holder. Okay, it's pretty sharp. He can kind of get around a little bit on that. Um, visited with him a little bit yesterday, and, you know, his foot has to generally stay kind of a far away from his body. And I'm not saying who's responsible, but he did have two granddaughters and a daughter in the house this week, and Gary's toes were each adorned with a Band-Aid that was bright blue and had little cartoon kitty cats and little things on that. And there's a photograph of that out there. I thought it would be a good idea to show that this morning. Don thought it would be a good idea to show that this morning. But the guy that has the photograph didn't think that was a good idea to show this morning. So I'll keep working on that. We'll see if we can get that for you later. Yeah, I know. Continue to pray for Gary. Um, as he recovers, as you can imagine, being an active person, it's not the easiest thing to be cooped up inside. Uh, but that's okay, because he's going to give us a good illustration in a couple weeks when we get to another passage. Quick review. We're going through Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians chapter 3, we took a look at the first five passages, and we talked about kind of how it's a one-two punch about fundamentals. And we related it to a lot about the Godhead, but we talked about Muhammad Ali as a fundamental boxer and how important fundamentals are. And the fundamentals kind of relate one to another, but it's always about either how you are justified or how you are sanctified. It talks about our salvation. The second passage we did last week, we talked about our spiritual ancestor in Abraham. We talked about family trees and how while Abraham is the literal father of the Jewish race, all of us being Gentiles, he's also our spiritual father because Abraham believed in God, and that's how he was saved. It was credited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness because he believed. And so Abraham is our ancestor. And this is very important as we go through Galatians because <clears throat> it's part of how we're relating to the Galatian people, and it's a part of our fundamentals. And so these are really important. Our path to righteousness is through belief. And today we want to keep looking at this, this theme that Paul continues to kind of develop in Galatians, which is, are you going to live by faith or by law? And that's the constant contrast, whether it's the spirit or the flesh, or whether it's God or me, Paul's going to make this contrast really obvious. Which one are you going to live by? By the faith or by the law? Paul has a point. He wants you to live by faith. And that was what we'll come back to that. So the central question this morning probably should reflect this. And the central question, if you're taking notes, we want to write this down. How should we live? By faith or by law? So quick reminder to everybody. As we go through this passage, um, this was written in A.D. 49, roughly, within a year or two. So a long time ago, but it is in the A.D. type of time. It's written to a bunch of Christian churches. Okay, it's written to churches in Galatia, and these were people mostly made up in Galatia of people that were Jewish by belief and had converted to Christianity, which is just like the author, the Apostle Paul, was Jewish and converted to Christianity. So there's a personal connection here between Paul and the churches he's writing to that is, um, you, you can sense a little bit of the, the hurt that Paul's 
a little angry. And those are very, very important things that Paul's writing about. Uh, that's really important that this is a big deal because what was going on in Galatia, uh, the, the, they called them Judaizers, but it was the idea that they couldn't quite leave the law behind them. They wanted to bring the law and add to it. So it's the gospel is believe and you're saved, period. We'll flesh that out even more today. Um, but the Judaizers in Galatia, the Galatian churches wanted to say, believe and be circumcised and you can be justified. Or believe and follow all the works of the law and you'll be sanctified. And they'll continue to add in things, works, things that we do, behaviors into it. And that, that's really serious. They're distorting the gospel and they're, they're teaching a heresy. And so Paul is addressing this head on and it's heartfelt. And it's serious. So this is a corrective letter, really between friends almost, that there's some deep, deep important hurts and some deep, deep important truths that need to be revealed. The key verse is the most important verse of Galatians, and it's verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 16. Man is justified, not justified, by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians is always going to be about salvation either our justification or our sanctification as we go through that. The text we're going to take a look at today is 10 through 14. Let me read that real quick, and then we'll pray and we'll dig into this. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for... The righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practiced them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us for the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Heavenly Father, as we gather before you, you've called us out to be your church. We give thanks to you that we have your word written in a language we can understand. We give thanks to you that we have a building that we can meet within. We give thanks to you, Father, for the people that have gone before us to create a nation that allows us to worship you in freedom. We give thanks to you for those that are at work, even right now, protecting us from dangers of criminals, from fires, from... Uh, emergency medical father that uh, aren't able to, to participate in worship with us because they are at work. Father, by your spirit, we ask that you would lend wings to my words and that, Father, it would be your Holy Spirit that illuminates this text in hearts and that, Father, any deficiencies on my part through study or through my speaking would be corrected by your Holy Spirit and that your word would go forth from this pulpit to each heart that hears my voice accurate and truthful by your spirit. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first thing we're always going to take a look at in Scripture is, okay, what do we see? Do we see any patterns here? And sure enough, there are. First off, we're going to see this law. Law shows up a lot in here. And we're going to see it's always next to curse. Okay, that's kind of obvious, I would hope, that law and curse are going to go together. And then we see faith and justified, or faith and salvation kind of being paired, things of the Spirit together. And then there's this interesting pattern, and this is interesting to me, there's Paul's words, and then a quote from the Old Testament, 
and then Paul's words, quote, Paul's words, quote, Paul's words, quote, and then the one that's not like the others, the last one. And it says in order. It's kind of a goal kind of thing. We're going to pay pretty close attention to that last one because that's, that's summing up the argument. So that's kind of interesting. And as we look at terms that are in there, we've talked about some important terms going through the first part of the chapter. We talked about law, which means the Hebrew law, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. It's behavioral things that you do. That's the law. Uh, we talked about faith, that faith is not our confidence, that faith comes from God, that when we believe, God puts his faith into us. So it's a holy thing. It's, it, it goes beyond human confidence in things. Faith is a very righteous thing. And we talked about righteousness last week, that righteousness is something that it's a, a term that comes from the law, from a courts, and God judges us righteous. Okay, and that's the whole idea of that God chooses to make us righteous because of faith, that the law, which is something that we do, doesn't make us righteous. And we talked about Abraham quite a bit. And Abraham comes up a lot because we're talking to, to formerly Jewish people. Abraham, the literal, literal father of the Jewish race, but the figurative father or spiritual father for all of us, people that are, we're not Jews by birth or genetically, but have become Christians. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. We believe, and we are justified by God, declared righteous according to God. So he's our spiritual father because we're following the same pattern that he had. A couple terms today that I really want to get into that I think are pretty important for us to look at. And the first one that you see a lot in this is curse or cursed. Cursed is a strong term or curse is a term that maybe doesn't get used a lot in some churches because it, it's a negative. It's a, in fact, it's the strongest negative we have. Um, we use curse kind of haphazardly in pop culture. Um, sports. There's the Billy Goat curse from the Chicago Cubs. That, that's why the Cubs didn't win the World Series for so long. There was the curse of the Bambino. The Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth away, and they didn't win the World Series only because of that. There's the curse of having college game day come to your college. There's the curse of being on the cover of Madden uh, video game. There's the Sports Illustrated cover curse. We talk about curses very, very casually, biblically. You can write this down. This is a strong term, and it means condemned by God. You don't curse somebody. It's a strong, strong term. It's deserving of being doomed by God. To be cursed is the worst thing. It means bound for hell. It means that you're, it's a, again, like a judge would sentence you to death. That's a curse except it's God doing it. So our culture doesn't give us good examples of this. Sometimes we read curse and kind of think, oh, that just is bad. No, this is bad, bad, bad. This is a, a, a big thing. It's to be found guilty and sent downward. And when we say that the, the law is a curse, it means the law cannot save you. The law, what you personally do, your works, cannot save you. At best, they're worthless. At best. And it can be sinful pretty quickly. We'll talk a little bit how the law can make us sinful by trying to follow that. So curse, 
pretty big deal, pretty big term. The second term is the opposite of that, more or less, and that's redeemed. Redeemed. Now, redeemed is a word made up of two other words. Uh, they call it compound, I think, terms. It's, so it's like two words kind of put together. So the first part of this, you've got to get both to kind of get the full meaning of redeemed. The first one is complete or fully. The second part of that is purchased. Kind of a commercial idea, to, to fully purchase something. Some examples of that might be uh, cash versus credit. If you purchase something with credit, you, you, you kind of have the thing, but you don't own it yet because you didn't fully pay for it. Um, this is about like 100% completely owned. Or you don't partially rescue somebody, you fully rescue them. You've got everything put together. Uh, to redeemed means it's fully exchanged. It is 100% taken care of, purchased, wrapped up. It's owned by somebody. Now, it's a commercial term. There's, it involves money, and you can't get the idea with that. But in context, this is about our justification. This is about being saved. This is about being completely taken care of by God. And the idea is that God did the purchasing. And it wasn't with money, and it wasn't an exchange. Okay, It's fully completed, though. And that's the important part is that. It's completely done. And redeemed has a lot of things that are sort of deal with our, our justification, our salvation. And we kind of want to take the open up the veil just a little bit, look behind the scenes at redeemed for just a second. And I want to put this up here. And if you want to get very technical with salvation, which is good to do, our, our elders, we have to kind of understand this from the ground up. And if this is interesting to you, I'll give you a couple tips. But from man's perspective, we place our trust in Jesus, and then we're saved. We're justified. Now, a lot of things are going on behind the scenes from God's perspective, because remember, we didn't save ourselves. God saves us. And so there are terms, as you go through the doctrine of what happens when you're saved, like Christ substituted himself on the cross. We're redeemed, reconciled. You can read through those. And I would encourage you, um, because justification is important, and the, the, the more you understand this, the more you can explain this to other people, and it's interesting. Um, the Grace Point Statement of Faith, you can get at the counter outside in the lobby, has a, a really nice article, short, on kind of what this is talking about. You're, you're going to be going through your Bible a lot, because this is kind of gathered in one place, things that are throughout the Bible. Another one, there's a couple of books out there on what are called Basic or Systematic Theology. There's one by a guy named Ryrie, and then there's one by Moody, the Moody Handbook of Systematic Theology. They're great. They're pretty, I think, easy to read, and I think you would uh, get a lot out of this. When you see the word redeemed, you realize there's a whole lot to unpack to that. Okay, and that's complex stuff, right? Here's the important part. God did it, and it's permanent. Tattoo that to the backside of your eyeballs because you can, you can get into the complexities and it's good to do so, but the important part, God saved you and it's permanent. It cannot be undone, ever. Your salvation, your redemption has been fully, 100% taken care of. That's what that word means. You are fully saved. Don't believe me? Fair enough. Take a look. At the words of Jesus Christ. I'll read that if it's not real clear. This is uh, from the Gospel of John, uh, the first 
verse up there is uh, verse 14, chapter 10, and then I finished with 28 through 30. Listen, we talk about redemption, that it's permanent. Jesus is speaking, and them is us, okay? I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Verse 28, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Can I get an amen? That is permanent. That is our security. We are saved by Christ. We are permanently saved by Christ. And nothing can change that. So when you're reading through this verse and you see the word redeemed, there's a lot in that. That is an awesome verse out of John that backs up what Paul is saying. Paul is a great teacher. It is very, very cool to go this, speaking as a former teacher professionally, this is excellent education. Paul's backing up his arguments with Old Testament references, and then he kind of hits us at the end with the kind of the goal. So let's go through these real quick, these verses, uh, kind of verse by verse, starting in verse 10. In our Christian walk, do we want to walk by faith or by law? Keep that in mind. That's Paul's argument. He's encouraging us to walk by faith. And so he's making these arguments to the Galatians. First one is, for as many are as of the works of the law. Other translations maybe make that a little easier. They might say, all who rely on the law for salvation are under a curse. Because the law can't redeem you. And then he backs it up with this Old Testament reference, cursed is everyone who does not abide. What he means by that is, in the Old Testament law, you have to follow it completely. Christians get a rap, kind of a bad rap, for being very judgmental and very rules-oriented. Do this, don't do that. That comes a little bit out of this. And the idea is that in the Old Testament law, it had to be followed perfectly for your entire life, or else you're condemned. Perfectly. Righteousness is all or nothing with the law. 100% perfect obedience, or you're condemned. Now, maybe you're a little more confident than I am. Maybe you're thinking, how hard can that be? How many laws? Maybe you're thinking of this as your laws, right? Ten commandments. Okay, sounds pretty simple. Only ten can you follow all ten for your whole life? I don't know. I'm pretty confident I can't. But maybe you'd say, yeah, I can do that. I could follow those my whole life. At least they're clear and simple, right? It's just ten. Not so much. You need to read a little more through the Old Testament. It's this. 613 laws. Actually, there's more than that, but we'll stick with the 613 that are mentioned here. You need to follow 613 about 40% are always due, and about 60% are never due, kind of do's and don'ts. And they're all through the Bible. Some of them are kind of simple. Leviticus 22.32, always hallow God's name. All right. Deuteronomy 8.10, always say grace after a meal. Doesn't sound too bad. But some of them get a little bit trickier. Leviticus 19.18, never bear a grudge. Talk politics at all this last weekend? <laughs> uh, Leviticus 25, 17. 
Never wrong anyone in speech or writing. There goes social media. Some of them get very, very difficult. Deuteronomy 13, 9. Hate. That's the word. Hate. A promoter of idolatry. Deuteronomy 22, 9. Never eat produce that came from a field that used two different seeds. Now, I'm a reasonably educated guy, but when I eat an onion, it's an onion. I have no idea what the seeds were used for that. I mean, we've got farmers here. They could tell us that. There are laws at those 613 that deal with sexuality, marriage, and divorce. Uh, 66 of those, by the way. There are 20 laws on farming, 40 for how you eat. I thought that was interesting. Half as many for how it's grown versus how it's eaten. Um, there are six dealing with swearing at people. 18 on the treatment of employees and or slaves. 23 on taxes and tithing. Still feeling like maybe you could observe all of those for your entire life and be perfect at it? Break one, condemn. Laws that deal with birth, death, war, farming, business, families, laws for everything. One person in all of human history fulfilled all of them for his entire life. Guy you might have heard of from Nazareth goes by the name Jesus. He was perfect, and that's important, that he perfectly fulfilled the law. He was not flawed in any way. So, a lot going on in verse 10. Let's take a look at verse 11. Again, the pattern, Paul's words, Old Testament quote. Um, he's clarifying himself here, this point that you have to follow the law completely. Okay, No one is justified by the law. The law is empty for your justification. You might recognize the quote there, from Habakkuk, one of the most difficult names to say correctly. Um, Gary covered Habakkuk for us a few, and that was the theme actually Gary used, was the righteous man shall live by faith. Okay, you live by faith. Paul's backing up his statement with the Old Testament, which again, remember, he's dealing with people that used to be Jewish. The Old Testament's very, very familiar to those guys in Galatia. So this is good. This is good backup that we are not saved by faith. No one is saved by faith. It's not by the law. The law is worthless for saving you. Only God. Verse 12. Again, continuing to break up the idea of law and faith being separate there and that you have to follow all of this. Um, law and faith are, as far as salvation goes, opposed. Okay? Faith will save you. Law will not. The quote there is from Leviticus 18.5, if you're keeping score. Biblical support for the law must be completely fulfilled. Outstanding teaching by Paul. Verse 13, think back to the process of salvation, which, you know, we can't do this enough out here. But when we believe, the first time we are justified, saved from the penalty, right now we're living in the process of sanctification, where we're being, present tense, saved completely. We have the power over sin, and we look forward to being Glorified. In the future, we will be saved from presence of sin. So you think about the process of salvation, which in this case over here is our justification. The concept is that a penalty has to be paid for our sin. And there's a, a timeless aspect of this. This goes past ages and time. It's, it's a, a universal concept. Sin exists, and somebody's got to pay the penalty for it. And that person should be you and I. We should be found. We're, we are guilty. 
we should have to hang on the tree. We are cursed by sin, and we deserve to hang on a tree. But God, which is probably the greatest phrase in the entire Bible, but God or but Jesus, but God had a plan where Jesus would be our substitute. Rather than me hanging on a tree, which I deserve, God put himself on the tree in the form of Jesus Christ, a perfect man who fulfilled the law completely, spotless, absolutely, and he is the perfect. He's the only thing that could hang in our place because he was perfect. He was fully man, and he's fully God, and that's a mystery that's hard to explain, but he fulfilled the law perfectly. He hung on the tree for us. Jesus Christ was cursed. He died, which is bad enough, but worse, he was separated from his father on our behalf. They call that substitutionary atonement, and you can read about that in those documents I talked about. It's a technical term, but the idea is that Jesus died for us. He put himself on the cross when it should have been us. That's an important part. But God had a plan to fix the penalty of sin. And that brings us to verse 14, which is the one verse not like the other verses. And this is the summary of the argument. This is the goal of what Paul's trying to say. Why did Christ take our guilt? What is, this is it. Why did he do that? It's so that. Oh, if you see so that, pay attention to it because it's important. So that we, all of us, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, would receive the promise of the Spirit, our salvation, through faith in Jesus. Paul is reminding his churches in Galatia, the churches in Galatia, that they're linked to Abraham through their belief that Abraham is their spiritual ancestor and that faith leads to justification over here. That justification leads to the Holy Spirit coming into us, which gives us power during our sanctification time and regenerates us. We're a totally new person when the Holy Spirit enters us. We're new. That's, we get the idea that some people call it second birth or being reborn. That's the principle, that when the Holy Spirit enters us, we are transformed on the inside. Completely different person. Quick note, sometimes we tend to mix up the race of Israel, the Jewish church, the Jewish faith, people with the church with us, Gentiles, and know that there's a separation there. And that's some pretty deep waters. And this is what's dealing with it. There's a process, a plan in place for the Jewish people and it has to do with law. And we're not a part of that. We have a whole separate way of doing things and that's with faith and the Holy Spirit entering us. And we are a part of this plan to go through with faith and the coming of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That we are blessed by faith, not by the law. The law will curse you. You can't follow the law 100%. The law will curse you. But God has provided a better path. That is our contrast. That is the verses there. You can live by one or by the other. So what do we take away from this? This awesome totally concentrated piece of scripture. Great passage, tons of stuff in there. And I think there's two, I'll call them gut check questions or diagnostic questions that you can ask yourself when you read this. And you're going to have to forgive, there's, I'm going to ask you to think of some 
pop culture things. How do we take away? Before we even get to the, the application, these two takeaways, I want you to think about two questions. Picture in your mind, I'll call it pop culture heaven. Okay? There's, this is extra biblical, but um, clouds, white robes, wings, halos, pearly gates, a guy named St. Peter interviews everybody to see if they get in or out. Pop culture heaven, okay? Picture you at the gates in pop culture heaven. You're trying to get in. You come up to St. Peter. St. Peter stops you, and he asks you this question. Why should you get into heaven? Now think about that for just a second. Why should you get into heaven? If your answer is anything other than because Jesus Christ died for me, you might be living under works. You might be depending on works to get you into heaven. It's a pretty common thing. Got a great friend. That's where he's at. Well, I've done a lot. I give a lot. I do a lot. I think I'm going to get into heaven. They're depending on the law. You might be doing that. If your first answer was something like, well, I go to church and I tithe. Those are good. Nothing bad about any of that, but it's not, it's worthless. It's not what gets you into heaven. That's the law. That's depending on what you do. You have to depend on what God has done. And this is, <laughs> this is as serious as anything I've ever said in front of you. How you're saved. Because if you're not depending on what Jesus Christ has done, you might be tricking yourself and you may not be saved. And I don't take it for granted that if you've been a, a regular attender here at this church that you're necessarily saved. Being in a church doesn't make you a Christian anymore that, whatever, sitting in the garage makes you a car. Faith in Christ makes you a Christian. And if you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if you have not fully committed, made that decision of the will to accept Jesus Christ, to cleanse you for your sins, to redeem you, I need you to talk to me afterwards today. I need you to talk to somebody before you leave here today because that is the most serious thing we could talk about. You are being, you could be cursed. And the biblical definition of curse, and that's not something to overlook quickly. That's one gut check question. I hope you've all answered that, you know, correctly. There's a second one, though. Picture this. You're at the pearly gates. Same thing. Pop culture heaven. You're talking to St. Peter. You're, you're being interviewed. And while you're being interviewed, there's another line of people going through the gates. Okay? Stop for a second and picture this in your head. Think of, and it has to be a real person, the worst person you possibly know from history or from any time. Worst ever. Evil. Mass murderers, child killers, genocidal maniacs. I'm thinking of stuff from... 1930s Germany, probably. Okay? Picture the worst person you possibly can. There's some great examples, unfortunately, from our history. Picture that walking piece of evil. You're at the pearly gates, and that person walks right in the door, welcomed as a friend of God. Can you handle that? How is that person getting to heaven? How do you respond to that? 
Because this is a tough one, at least for me. This was the tough one because if I got a little heartburn about Heinrich Himmler walking in the gates of heaven before me, I'm probably living under works because I'm better than Himmler. I didn't cause genocide. I'm not Paul Pot. I'm not Mao. I've not done. Oh, I'm depending on what I did, not what God did. Oh, now I get it. Okay, there's a human reaction to that. That certainly, I'm not saying if we have that first reaction. of, But then if we think about it for a little bit, are we the judge? No. God is the judge based on faith, not on works. Is it possible that Nazi high regime people on their deathbed accepted Jesus Christ? Yeah. And they're going to be our brothers and sisters. That's totally possible. Personally, I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. And we have to be okay with that. And if we're not okay with that, that might be a sign that we are living under works or law for our ongoing daily sanctification. And that's something we've got to watch out for. Because it's tempting, folks. We might be a lot like the Galatians. It's easy to do that. We want to lift ourselves up to feel good about ourselves and we, sometimes we do that by pushing other people down. That's what the Galatian churches were doing. The Galatians were saying, oh yeah, you can believe, but if you're a real Christian, you really want to be saved, you've got to be circumcised too. Oh, and you've got to follow all this works of law. So yeah, believe, but do and do and do and don't do and don't do. That's how you're really saved. And they were pushing down all the other people. We have social media all around us, and it's a, a culture that favors, if you will, outrage and being against things, and tearing other things down, and making fun of people, and pushing people down. C.S. Lewis said it best. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something above. We have to watch ourselves, brothers and sisters, we're looking down on others. So one question is a gut check on your justification. How are you getting into heaven? What are you depending upon? And the second one, I think, for me anyway, is a gut check on how's my sanctification? What am I depending on to grow in the Lord? And it's the question for me comes down to its relationships versus religions. Relationship is depending on Jesus Christ and God in me rather than my own works. And so this is the application for me. And again, application is my own personal opinion. You take it and five bucks, you can get a cup of coffee. It's only good for you if the Holy Spirit moves you in that direction, which I pray he would, and maybe this stimulates some thinking. But we have one and one. The two things here for you to think about as takeaways. And they both deal with guarding each other. And the first one is to guard each other in the church inside here. Um, in God's space conversations, don't just think about God's space outside the church. Listen to each other. Okay, I've gotten really tried to pick up my antenna for picking up on works. When I hear people talking about what they depend on, like my good friend, I've been witnessing, I don't know, many people have been witnessing him for about 25 years now. He depends on his works. I try to drill down on those differences between relationship and religion. Works are only relatively good. 
being a churchgoer doesn't make you a Christian. Doing good things doesn't make you saved. Guard one another. Second one is guard one another outside the church. Or be careful that we're not depending on good works for our sanctification. Okay, encouraging, and I would encourage you right now to listen to me. If I start to rip on other churches, if I start to be denigrating somehow in how I speak, if we're comparing things, there's a way to look at honest differences, and there's a way to do it where I'm pushing somebody else down. If you hear that in me, you have full permission to smack me upside the head. Okay, and we should have permission with one another to smack each other upside the head because it's easy to fall into this trap. Our culture promotes a certain amount of outrage and righteous anger and indignation, and we vote for it. It's not going to take us in the right direction. We're thinking about what we do rather than who we are in Jesus Christ. It's about a relationship, not about a religion. The works is sneaky. The law is sneaky. It'll get in there. But that, my friends, is chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can gather together. Once again, we are very, very grateful for the men and women that have gone before us in the armed services, in the police forces, in the fire departments, ambulances, all the people that are at work today to protect us, to give us this very peaceful country where we can honor you, we can worship you in complete freedom. It is a blessing that so few people throughout history and across our world today enjoy, and we don't want to take that for granted, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for providing a plan that gets us out from the curse of law, and that, Lord, only because of your son, Jesus Christ, do we have a hope that goes beyond us because we can't get there on our own, Father. As we close out this time of worship of you, Lord, I pray that each one of us would worship you this morning in spirit and truth, reflecting on our own salvation. And Father, give all the glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Won't you all please stand for our last song together this morning?